Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's scripture is from Daniel chapter 5, verse 5 through 7. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Well, uh, if you ever get a chance to go to London, I'm sure some of you have been there and some of you desire to be there. Um, There are so many great things to see in London. It's hard to say. You need many, many days. But there's one place you may not be as inclined to go, but I'd really recommend, and that's the National Gallery, where you have the collection, the official collection of a lot of British art or art that the British people have collected. And you'll see some amazing pieces there, including this one, one of my very favorite, this Rembrandt piece uh, that I remember seeing uh, many years ago for the first time in person. And it is so striking because of the, the brightness of the upper corner there of the words. But especially as I continue to go back to this and look at this painting, especially the facial expressions uh, of the people uh, in this painting are so remarkable. Maybe you know, look at it after the service and you can look at it more closely. And this painting comes from Rembrandt from 1635, and it's called Belshazzar's Feast because it's based on the climactic moment from our text from the Bible today. And that climactic moment in Belshazzar's feast also gives the world an idiom or a proverb that we say, which is the handwriting on the wall. And if you Google the handwriting on the wall, you'll see that it means something like a premonition of impending failure or disaster or doom. And it again comes right from our story from Daniel chapter 5 and Belshazzar's feast. Now, this famous story, like all the stories in Daniel, Daniel 1 to 6, is really fascinating, and, it's, and it is very famous. But unlike most of the other stories we've been seeing in Daniel, is that this story of Belshazzar's feast isn't going to make it into most of our children's Bibles, because it basically takes place at a drunken orgy fest. The hero is an 80-year-old guy whose great feat is that he can read Aramaic, and it ends up with a guy getting killed. So not exactly the next year's VBS theme, probably, or something. It's not, it's, it's not going to appear in, in our children's Bibles. But it is a very powerful story, and one that uh, I think has a lot more to say to us than it may initially seem. So as we turn to the story, I just want to pause once more and uh, pray that God would direct us. So let me pray for us. Once again, our Father, we uh, come to you uh, acknowledging our frailty, acknowledging our need for you to sustain us, uh, thanking you uh, for, I do thank you for bringing us together at this time and this morning And we thank you for the Bible that continues to teach and preach, instruct and shape our lives, our hearts, our relationships. So please come again by the Spirit 
and open our eyes to see your goodness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be in Daniel 5, and if you have a Bible, that's great to follow along. You can pull it up in your phone or maybe in the chair, underneath the chair in front of you. But we have been, if, you're, if you've been here or not, we've been going through a series in Daniel 1 to 6, and so far, so just to give a little uh, time, get you up to speed here, Daniel was a Jewish young man who was part of a faithful group of Jewish young men who were captured in Jerusalem when the great empire of the Babylonians came and besieged the city in the 6th century BC, near the beginning of that, and took away a lot of the very gifted young people back several hundred miles away to this great city of Babylon. And the stories in chapters 1 to 4 of Daniel that we've been looking at over the last several weeks um, are all about this great emperor of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and all the interactions that these young Jewish guys had with him. So uh, we've already seen the fiery furnace, etc. And and Nebuchadnezzar plays large in all of these stories. Now, last week, when Pastor Chad preached, that was the most dramatic of these stories, where Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, is humbled by God. So he's very proud, and he's the emperor, and he's ruling over all these people. But God humbles him and actually makes him like a beast for seven months or seven years. We don't know how long. And that he actually is living in the wilderness like a beast, eating grass, with you know living outside, until he learned in humility to acknowledge that God was the true king of the world, not him. Now, that's not just my interpretation of it. Look at, let me put on the screen here for you, what Nebuchadnezzar himself says about what happened back in Daniel 4. He says, at the end of that time, that season where he's acting like a, he's you know, insane, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity is restored. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that story, which really is, again, the high point of Daniel 1 to 4, is going to turn out to be really important for our story today. But our story in chapter 5 begins very starkly and very unexpectedly, very abruptly, because all the characters that we met in chapters 1 to 4 are not there all of a sudden in chapter 5, and we have a new king with no explanation. The new king who's presented to us is named Belshazzar. Now, it's very arresting and confusing, and so it can be helpful, to, be helpful for me to take it just a minute to fill in a little background from history of what we know had happened. So Nebuchadnezzar, the guy we've been dealing with so far, the king, he reigned for a long time, 43 years, and was very successful as an emperor. And then he died, we know, in 562 BC. And as often happens, after somebody reigns for a long time, there's chaos. And so that's what happens. Over the next 25 years, it is chaos of kings. So his son uh, rules for a little while and then is assassinated after just a year. The guy who, by his brother-in-law, the brother-in-law who assassinates um, Nebuchadnezzar's son, he lasts for four years until he's killed. His son is only on the throne for one month before he's assassinated. And so all this is going on. This typically happens. And then a new king comes to the throne named Nabonidus, and he had a problem himself, and that is that he was a passionate 
devotee of a different god than the god of, of Babylon. He loved this other god, this moon god, and so he wasn't very popular, so he ended up setting up his kingdom about 500 miles away mainly, but Babylon was still the main city, and so he placed his son in charge, second in charge, and running the kingdom from Babylon, and his son was Belshazzar. That's the guy we meet. And so that puts our story in about 539 BC, about 25 years after all the other stuff uh, that had happened and longer after Nebuchadnezzar's death. So new king. And what do we find about this King Belshazzar? Where do we find him? Well, right when we enter chapter 5, we see that he is having a major drunken party. He has a thousand of his lords and administrators there, fine wine, food, women, this massive feast going on right at the beginning of the story. And you can imagine what kind of things are happening at this party as the wine is flowing, the music is playing, things are getting out of hand. I, I think of it as like maybe a, things you see on TV, like a Hollywood brat party where these you know, super wealthy children of famous people and somebody's Porsche ends up in the pool. That's how I'm kind of imagining this. Like it's just out of control. And at some point in this feast, who knows why, Belshazzar remembers that there are some especially fine gold goblets that no one has ever used. These really fancy gold goblets that have been in this special place in the royal treasury for 40 or 50 years, and no one's ever used them. And the reason was is because these goblets were the very ones that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple when he captured Jerusalem. These are the goblets that the high priest used, and he never used them. He kept them someplace special. And who knows why, but Belshazzar, in the middle of this feast, thought of these goblets and said, I want to use these. So imagine, again, at this, at this drunken festival or drunken feast in a, in a mansion, and then some people are you know, wasted, and they stumble into this kind of private part of the house, and they find this $10,000 bottle of champagne and the heirloom jewelry, and they're trying it on with these stupid grins in their face and breaking the bottle. This is kind of the scene here. It's like things are getting more and more out of control, and he says, bring those, gold, those special gold goblets. And so we see, if you're following along in verses 2 to 4, that Belshazzar and all the lords and wives and concubines, they start drinking from these special goblets they've taken from their defeated Jews, and they begin to praise the gods of gold and silver. Oh, great God of gold, you are so beautiful. Gods of silver and bronze, you provide for us. Gods of iron, wood, and stone, we praise you for your strength. And just at this crazy moment, this drunken moment, something happens that shocks and terrifies everyone, like hearing gunfire and screams in the middle of a party, or if right now Dr. Strange did his things and he just came through there, right, with my wife's favorite superhero, Benedict. He's coming through. This would be that shocking. And you can imagine, sorry, hon, uh, you, you, <laughs> you can imagine that at first the people right around would see it and they'd get quiet and this is what happens, Belshazzar and the people there, and you can think of Rembrandt's painting, they're all looking up and then, you know, people in the other parts of the huge banquet hall are probably still talking, but then pretty soon, every, you know, they, you hear quiet and everyone starts turning and seeing this and they are shocked at what's happening because if you look at verse five, I'll read it for you here again. It says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, and the king watched the hand as it wrote. Now, the Bible doesn't very often actually give physical descriptions of people. It's, it's pretty significant when you get a physical description because it's not actually very common that you get that. 
And do you see what it said in verse 6? He says, the king, Belshazzar, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Now, that's a nice way of describing it. That's actually a family-friendly translation because what the words actually say is that the knots of his loins were loosed. So you can just do the math about what that means. The knots of his loin were loose, so he lost it, right? You pray about that. <laughs> so then we see in verses 7 to 9 that in shock and terror, Belshazzar does what any emperor would do, when he's faced with some naughty problem, and that's actually a play on words that's in the text as well. He can't figure it out, so he calls all the wise men, the astrologers, the experts, and he's so distressed that he promises that anyone who can interpret what is going on with this hand and these words up here, if anyone can interpret, they'll be given robes and, and gold, and they'll become the third in the kingdom, because he's second in the kingdom. They'll become third in the kingdom. Basically, they will rule under him. And it's very reminiscent of what had been happening in Daniel uh, 1 to 4, where, again, Daniel becomes the hero because he's able to interpret these dreams. But just like in those other stories, he doesn't think, he's not thinking of Daniel. He calls all the wise men of, of his empire, and none of the people with PhDs in Babylonian culture and religion had any idea on what to say, and everyone is afraid. But then a new character walks into the scene, if you're following along, you'll see, and that is the queen mother. And I, I picture her here as the dowager in Downton Abbey or something. I won't attempt a, a uh, accent or anything, but imagine Maggie Smith sort of walking into this because word has spread all throughout the palace of this crazy, disturbing thing that's happening in the, fe the feast room. And so she comes in. She's apparently not there before. She's more level-headed than that. She comes right up to Belshazzar in all the chaos, and just basically says, stop freaking out. There is someone who can help. She remembers, you see, back over the last decade, she's been around a while, she remembers that there's a guy who can interpret riddles and dreams. So in verse 11, verse 11, she says, I know a man who has insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. In verse 12, she says, I know this man has a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. And who is it? It's the Jewish captive, Daniel. So get him here. Belshazzar, Belshazzar is, is desperate. And so it's interesting to, to realize this. We don't often think of it this way, but Daniel at this time is probably about 80 years old because this is 25 years after um, Nebuchadnezzar has already died. Those events of Daniel 1 and 4 had been going on for some time. He was already maybe in his 20s or 30s when he was captured, right? And so he's an old guy now, and we don't know what he's been up to. He's obviously not in, in charge like he used to be. He's seen four or five kings go since he was at his high place. He used to be second in command. He's not in prison or anything, but he's just, he's not a player anymore at this point. He's out of the, out of the limelight. And so no one is even thinking of him except for the queen mother. And so he, they bring, Belshazzar calls for Daniel. He comes and he offers to Daniel, if you can interpret this, I will make you third in the kingdom and give you all these things. And the most important part of the story is found in what Daniel says. So let me read this for you, starting in verse 17. So Daniel's standing there in the midst of all this chaos and fear. Daniel answered the king, you may keep your, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So 
this always just strikes me. This is a man who knows himself. He's been around. He doesn't care about the accolades and all that. He's not angling for anything. You can keep your, you can keep all the stuff you're offering me. I'll, I'll just tell you what this means. And he goes on, your majesty, the most high God gave your father, that is your ancestor, you know, it's used in this broader sense, your ancestor, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position that God gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people. He was given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So notice, so Daniel's tying in, the, again, chapter 4, here the story there with our story. Verse 22, But you, Belshazzar, his son, his descendant, You've not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, pay attention, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Let me read that verse again. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And what does it mean? Mene, Aramaic, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. It's a powerful speech. Daniel tells it like it is. He finishes his speech. We don't know what Belshazzar was thinking or feeling, but obviously the words are not very encouraging. Belshazzar does what he said he was going to do. He gives Daniel all the stuff that he doesn't care about. He gives him the robe and the gold and everything. And then Daniel leaves, and that's it. That's the whole role that Daniel plays in this. And then our story ends as abruptly and shockingly as it begins. Look at verses 30 and 31 to end chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So it started out of nowhere. It ends abruptly. And it turns out then that there's a really important part of our story from history that is not explicit in the text, but that we can understand. Because you see, we know exactly when this story happened. We know the night that it happened. We know that it was the year 539 BC, and we know it from historians in the ancient world, particularly a guy called Herodotus, who tells us exactly what happened that night. It turns out that this big 1,000 Lord drunken fest was actually happening in the middle of Babylon, the great city, under siege. You see, for so long, Babylon had been such a dominant empire 
in the ancient Mediterranean. They just dominated everyone. They weren't worried about anybody. They defeated everybody, and Babylon was this amazing city with 100-foot, you know, two, 300-foot walls that was completely self-contained. The Euphrates River ran through it underneath the walls. It was so large, and the walls were so protective, they were self-sustaining. They, had, they could grow food in there. And so this up-and-coming empire, the Medes and Persians, based basically in the Iranian area, modern Iran, they're growing, and they basically besiege. They camp around Babylon for a couple of years, and they can't figure out any way to get in because it's, it's such a powerful empire. And so they're not worried. They're so not worried that, Dari, that um, Belshazzar has this you know, huge feast in the midst of the city being besieged, very confident that nothing can go wrong. However, we know from Herodotus exactly what happened. The Medes and Persians built a canal. They diverted the Euphrates River so that it got low enough that they could actually, about thigh, thigh height, walk under, on the river, under the walls, come up inside, and begin destroying everybody. And they actually made it all the way to the palace and killed Belshazzar this night. Right? Completely unexpected. And it's these Medes and Persians who then take over, who we're going to meet when we preach through Esther. It's about 50 years later or so that they're the ones who are ruling during the stories of Esther. And it's the same empire that's still ruling when finally under Cyrus, the Jews are able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So it's all fitted in here into history. But the, the story of Daniel 5 doesn't tell us all that. It's very abrupt and it's very uh, stark how Belshazzar comes on the scene and dies within one chapter. So the Bible stories are always amazing, always interesting, but they're more than history. I mean, I like history. Some of you like history as well. But the reason we are still reading this story thousands of years later, the reason why we take time out of our lives to study it and then to preach from it and gather to listen from it is because, as the Apostle Paul says about all the Bible, these things in history happened as examples and warnings for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. These are for us, Paul says. So what are we supposed to take away from this story of Daniel and Belshazzar's feast? Well, like any great story, I think there's a lot of things we could say about it. Let me just rifle through some of these that I think it's clearly saying that God is sovereign and the true emperor of the world and does whatever he wants in goodness. We could also say we can see that God lifts people up and empires up and takes them down as well. This has been a theme all throughout Daniel. Back in Daniel 2.21, it says, God changes times and seasons. He deposes kings, raises up others. We could see from the story that God evaluates our hearts, that he looks at our hearts, and that's the idea of weighing and measuring and knows what's in our hearts. We could also take away from this the truth that it's important to live wisely because none of us knows when our lives will end. I mean, Belshazzar certainly didn't think that was the night his life was going to end, right? Many scholars have connected this story with Jesus' parable in Luke 12. Let me just read it for you very quickly. Jesus says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. There I'll store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. 
This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves is not rich toward God. And that's a, that's a powerful takeaway, the, the idea of the fragility of life. I have a very dear friend who earlier this week had an accident with an injury, and so I was there spending a couple hours with him at his house just talking about it, and he, he's going to be totally fine. But it was only a matter of inches of where he received the injury that it could have made the difference between sort of some inconvenience for a week or so and a major problem, you know, with hitting an artery or organs or things like that. And so, you know, as I just thought about the fragility of life again, you know, just he had no idea that was going to happen. You and I have no idea what's going to happen. And so too, I think this is something we could take away. But I'd like to sum up all of this and really drive home what I think the main big idea of Daniel 5 for us today is this, and I want to describe it with words from another place in the Bible, the simple saying, this profound saying, that is, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'd like to suggest to you, friends, that this little saying beautifully and powerfully encapsulates so much of the Bible's whole message, of God's message to you and me. And it's worked out in a very profound way in this story when we consider how Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5 connect together. Because you see, in Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, again, he's proud and he's humbled by God as a result. He's humiliated, but then he learns from this and embraces his lowly position and in, and in his humility, then he's lifted up, he's restored, he's shown grace and restored by God. But in chapter 5, King Belshazzar is also proud, and even more, he's blasphemous toward God. But when he is humbled, he doesn't repent. Yes, he's scared, he's worried. His response to Daniel, though, is not one of, oh God, or you know, Daniel, pray to me to the God of heaven, I've been wrong. Not at all. He tries to you know, give Daniel all these things, but it's very clear that he is proud and that God then opposes him to his destruction. Have you ever noticed that a lot of times in the Bible, we're actually giving, we're given pairs of characters together so that we can learn from them. There are lots of times where two characters are put together in the same situation and they respond differently and that's meant for our instruction. I think of, for example, both David and Saul when they encounter Goliath, right? Saul is fearful and self-protective and David has great faith in God and, you know, the results of their two lives. Or I think of Matthew chapter 15 when these scribes and Pharisees come from Jerusalem and they find Jesus and they're really mad at him because he fed all these people in the wilderness and they didn't wash their hands. And so he, they're, they're very mad and angry at him about this. And then right after that, what's the story that happens? This Canaanite woman, this outsider of the people of God, comes and throws herself asking for Jesus' mercy. We're meant to see the comparison and the contrast of those two. Or you think of Peter and Judas, two of the 12 disciples who both fail Jesus and come to regret it with tears, but Judas's Regret is really only self-loathing, while Peter's remorse results in repentance and restoration. Those kind of 
pairings of characters are meant to be instructive to you and me. And so too with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, these two pagan kings from 2,500 years ago serve as examples for you and me in Louisville today on how to respond to God. They're both proud. Notice they're not perfect or something. These are not like super spiritual people. But when they are humbled, they respond very differently. So too with Peter and Judas and David and Saul. So among the many big truths I think we can get from Daniel 5, I think God is teaching us that, again, he opposes the proud, but he does give grace to the humble. God is not a bully or power hungry. He doesn't oppose the proud because he needs something, but, but because the proud person is destructive to themselves and those around them. But in God's kindness and goodness, when we respond in humility to him, and notice even if that humility is a self-inflicted humiliation. Maybe we've done something, we've gotten ourselves into some mess, big or small. You know, we said something stupid, did something stupid. Even in that humiliation that results of our own stupidity, when we turn to God, we find grace. That he's opposed to pride, but he gives grace to the humble. God doesn't show up when we've humiliated ourselves and say, well, I told you so. Or like we might say to our kids, well, there's a life lesson there for you kids or something. Noah's the perfect father. He is gracious and welcoming. He doesn't shame us in our humility, but instead he gives grace. So what is this humility? What is this humility that God is for and this pride that he's against? Well, here's how I'd like to help you think about what humility is. I mean, it's a little different than maybe you've thought. I'd like you to think of humility as a strength, as like a a core strength, a way of being in the world that is centered and strong because it's realistic about its limits. That is, we are realistic about our limits. Humility is not this sort of self-effacing and always putting yourself down. That's a kind of false humility. I'll come back to that here in a minute. So if, if you had someone who's very skilled, one author used the example of Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, and you know, if Yo-Yo Ma got up here and said, oh, I'm not actually very good at cello or something, that's not, that's not real, right? That's, he is excellent at cello, and you all have things you're good at. There's, there's nothing, humility is not acting like you're not good at something you're good at, right? Humility is this inner core strength that is a, a posture of heart that acknowledges what is true of all of us, that we're limited, that just as creatures of God, we, are, we have limits. We have limits of strength and knowledge and wisdom and control, and uh, we can't be in more than one place at a time. We have limits, and that as sinful creature, we, we often, sinful creatures, we fail. We, have, we sin, we make mistakes, we hurt other people, we do stupid things that dishonor God and ourselves and others, we fail to, to love and do what is right. Humility is this beautiful core strength that acknowledges those things. It acknowledges them without being crushed or living in despair. In fact, it is humility, you see, this core strength that enables us, that is the acknowledgement of our limits and sins and mistakes, that enables us to not be crushed when we're criticized. Right? The person who's crushed when they're criticized, that reveals that there's a misplaced strength, that the strength is in the performance, not in this somewhat mysterious thing that is this, this centeredness, this core strength of, of humility. I'm not sure if you've seen this in life yet. I I think many of you probably have, but you know that underneath arrogance and pride is actually insecurity and fear. And it's always proportional. 
right? That the people that are the most arrogant and prideful are the people that are most insecure and fearful. That's how it is. Because you see, pride and arrogance are one of the ways that our souls try to defend against insecurity and fear. So when you see someone or you see in yourself, you show up with a lot of pride and arrogance, underneath that is something else. Underneath that is a fear. Now, other people try to handle that with the self-effacing. That's another kind of, that's a false humility. That, you know, out of this insecurity and fear, you can't handle if somebody tells you something good, right? Or you, you, know, you say, oh, no, it's not true of me or something. That's, that's not strength. That's not virtue either, right? Humility is able to acknowledge your limits and be okay with that, right? Not in being prideful nor in this false humility. I mean, I've seen this in my own life. Of course, I struggle with pride like everyone does, but nothing like when I was younger, right? When I was younger, I had so many insecurities and so many doubts and just, just needed affirmation, needed to figure out what I was doing and, and how for me that showed up was, you know, self-promotion always. That's how I learned, right? To, to get, to, to try to squeeze a drop of affirmation out of everybody I met, right? So that I would have enough to drink, to keep me alive, right? That was a function of not having developed yet this core strength of humility. Now, most of us as Christians, we learn that it's not okay to be over the top. So we learn like techniques to sort of not really get rid of our pride, but to still get things from other people that look more acceptable. But that doesn't really get rid of our pride. If we don't develop this core strength of humility, that longing, that hemorrhaging pride will look like cynicism and skepticism and a judgmental attitude a lot of times, or self-loathing and self-effacing. The key idea, I think, to get us back to our story in Daniel 5 is that this humility, this core strength, works itself out in two key ways that I'll describe as a, a vertical humility and a horizontal humility. Vertical humility in relationship to God and horizontal in relationship to others. Let me say something about each of them briefly. Horizontal, when we think of humility, that's mostly what we think of. We think of humility in relationships to others, and that's good. We should think of that. This is Jesus' own model. He is humble and lowly of heart. He says, take my yoke upon you because this is how I am. And then his own humility becomes the model for what it means to live as a Christian in the world. It becomes the model. So let me read for you these famous verses from Philippians chapter 2 that bring this together so powerfully. Paul says, Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. God gives grace, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This means that you and I can learn and we can practice growing in this horizontal humi humility and relating to other people so that when a friend or a parent or a child corrects you when you're wrong, we can and grow, we can and should grow to be more quick to listen, 
slow to speak and slow to anger. We can put into practice Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. These are ways of developing and, and pursuing by the power of the Spirit this horizontal humility. Horizontal humility means asking forgiveness from other people when we've wronged them or failed them, even if you think that you've only been 1% of the problem here. And I guarantee you it's always more than that. But even if you think it's only 1%, this core strength of humility will enable you to free you to just own it and apologize without having to put a bunch of qualifications on it. Oh, I'm sorry if you were hurt. Or That's not an apology. Don't say that, right? Or you apologize, but then you, but, and then you try to explain why what you did wasn't as bad as it looks or something. The core strength of humility gives you the freedom to just acknowledge your limits and your mistakes, right? And to just ask forgiveness. Horizontal humility means that you and I don't have to show up with all these false selves and all these masks on with each other because you have come to recognize your limits, right? You're not, you're not showing up trying to have everything together because that's so tiring and it's not real, right? This core strength of humility, my point is, friends, it's where life is found. There's freedom in it. It seems the opposite to just acknowledge your limits, but that's the place where we can find life. Because that's who we really are. We really are limited people, and we're people that make mistakes. And so if you can embrace that, that will transform your ability to relate to others in this horizontal, horizontal humility. And that's all good and beautiful, but actually the main thing I want you to take away from today is this other kind of humility that we don't often think about as much, and we'll call this vertical humility. And this is where it all starts this is the most important thing I'm going to say today, that is living in humility toward God. And again, think back to our two kings. Nebuchadnezzar represents someone who comes to understand, listen to me carefully, that the most important thing about him is his posture of humility toward God more important than his power, his wisdom, his riches, his authority, his influence, his legacy. The most important thing he comes to realize is a posture of humility toward God. And just the opposite, Belshazzar serves as the opposite example with disastrous results. He's self-dependent, he's arrogant, he's confident in his power and position's abilities, even to the point of blasphemy. And thus, when God calls his bluff and God shows up, he's destroyed. Vertical humility recognizes our limits and our utter dependence on God for everything we have and do. Our accomplishments, our abilities, our money, our friends, our family, our physical health, our safety, even having your next breath is dependent on the God of heaven. And you know, it's so easy to forget this. I remember my wife and I were talking about this last night when... When you're in your 20s, many of you in your 20s, I know for me in those days, I was very aware of needing to figure out life. It's a very hard time, right? And so I was, by the grace of God, seeking the Lord intensely during those years, and I'd highly recommend that to you as well if you're in your 20s. It will change your life to seek the Lord during this time. But I was very aware of the need for God to provide this opportunity and provide this opportunity to open this door and to keep things going. I'm very aware of that. But something happens. As you get older, 
Many of you can witness that maybe in your 30s, 40s, I'm about to be 50, and many of you are ahead of me on that. It's, it's hard to stay in that position. You, you know, you figure out your career, you figure out your relationships, you figure out your money, you figure out where you're going to find your identity, you, you know, figure out all these kind of things. And it's so difficult to continue to live conscious of your dependence on God because, you, you know, you've worked it out. You figured it out. Unless you're given the grace of a disaster, that's a grace that you can realize how dependent you are. But for, for many of us, you kind of, you figure it out. And so you don't, you, you stop living conscious of this utter dependence we have on God for every paycheck, for every relationship staying together, for everything you have. That is all from God. And I, I was reminded of these words that James 4 says right after just a few verses after he says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Listen to what he says. James says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? why you, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. My friend didn't expect that he would have this accident, right? You, you and I don't know what's even going to happen this afternoon to us. What is your life? You're, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. The, the point of this is not that it gives us a magic formula that you can still do whatever you want, just say, if the Lord wills in front of it. <laughs> right, that's not the point. The point is that this represents and challenges us to a posture, a way of living that recognizes on a moment-by-moment moment our dependence on God. Now, you could, you could mess that up like we can anything and be paranoid. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? That's not the point. The point is growing in this posture of vertical humility, recognizing that he's good. God's not anxious. He's not, he's not worried about you. He's not wringing his hands up there about you. He's not arms crossed, worried that you made the wrong decision or something. Recognizing that the real position you and I have is one of daily, moment-by-moment, moment, utter dependence. That's what really is our situation. So when we learn to pay attention to that and live into that, we're not doing anything extra for God. We're just realigning our lives with what is really true of us, that we're utterly dependent on him. And when we do that, when we do that, friends, we will find life. I just expanded our deck a fair amount, so I was reminded of this. The, the saying we have cut with the grain versus not. There were times where I was cutting wood with the grain and times where I had a jigsaw, I had to cut something around, going around a pool, I do not recommend it. And, and it was, you know, when you're cutting around against the grain, you feel it, right? And so many of us are living our lives against the grain. But when we learn to step into and be conscious of the way in which we are totally utterly dependent on God, it's with the grain of the universe because that's true of us and there's life. So maybe this means for you, before you look at your phone in the morning, just, just think about sleep, how weird it is. You are completely helpless, right? You are unconscious when you're sleeping. And then you wake up. Okay, whoa. All right, you wake up. Maybe before you look at your phone, turn your heart to the Lord. Say, God, thank you for, that I'm awake. Thank you that I'm alive, and today I, re I give myself to you. 
Again, I need you. Or maybe after you put your phone down at night, pray for 30 seconds, thanking God for another day that he's sustained you, asking forgiveness and strength, wisdom. Maybe at lunch, this means just taking a minute to pray. Just, just take a break. You got time? And just redirect your heart to the Lord. I'm not asking you to do some big super spiritual stuff. I'm asking you to just be aware of the dependence we have on God and be like Nebuchadnezzar in this, not like Belshazzar, because that's who we truly are. Now, as we wrap up our service and go to the table, it's not an accident that Jesus is the model of all of this. He humbled himself. He lived this way. He lived dependent on God with joy. And as a result, God exalted him, right? He's more than a man. He's also God, man incarnate. But he is the model for how to relate to the Father because he does it perfectly in a way that we will never do perfectly, but he's still the model for us. We relate to God and to each other in the same way he did in that he gave his body represented by the breaking of this bread. He gave himself in love to us and he gave himself in love to us represented by the wine that represents his blood. He does something that we cannot do for ourselves, which is he makes a relationship between us and God so that we can live with the grain of who we truly are. He makes a clean, new relationship between God and humanity in his broken body and spilled blood. And so if you're a Christian today, I'd like to invite you. I'm going to pray here in a minute. The musicians are going to come forward. Use that time to just, just pause for a second and turn your heart to the Lord again and just acknowledge the ways, not in full of guilt and shame, but just acknowledge the ways that you've not been conscious of him and living in dependence of him, knowing that he's looking upon you with a smiling face. He's not mad, right? He is welcoming you to turn back to you. So turn back to him. So please turn to the Lord in humility and joy. Once again, let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.